This is John. Um, thanks for joining us, and I'm really excited for you to hear my interview that I just did with James A. Chamberlain, who is assistant professor of political science at Mississippi State University, and most uh, importantly for the purposes of this podcast, is the author of the new book from ILR Press slash Cornell University Press called Undoing Work, Rethinking Community, A Critique of the Social Function of Work. Now, some of these ideas, I suspect, will not be totally foreign if you are a longtime listener of the Always Ready podcast. Um, kind of James and I opened the interview by talking a little bit about how this particular text fits into, at least within political theory, an increased attention to the politics and ideologies and discourses and social functions and particularly critiques of all of those things of work um, that have been coming out really, you know, we kind of uh, cite Kathy Weeks's 2011 book um, as a kind of really foundational moment in initiating this mode of political theory and critical theory. And from there, we explore kind of a bunch of different issues specifically related to James's book, but also kind of going beyond to think more about uh, what a critique of work, what a critique of, as he calls it, the social function of work enables us to think about more broadly. So uh, stick around for this interview where we talk about, um, you know, everything from specific policies like universal or unconditional basic income and the federal job guarantee to questions of ontology and community and incredibly philosophical sense. And along the way, we also discuss issues um, such as the expectations for work um, as a way to form a social bond. We talk about different visions and versions of post-work societies from Kathy Weeks and Andre Gores and Hart Negri and others, and kind of the way that they may actually reinscribe some of the ideologies or values of work society. And towards the end um, of the conversation, you'll hear us get into questions about um, Marxist feminism, about social reproduction, about the racialization of labor. And it ends on a somewhat more uh, personal note, thinking about what a critique of work means for those who work within academia and also for undergraduates uh, that we teach or that might be listening uh, to this podcast. So um, I will get out of the way to uh, make some more room and more space for James Chamberlain. And uh, we will, I will be right back after this with the interview. I'm joined now by James A. Chamberlain, who is assistant professor of political science at Mississippi State University, author of Undoing Work, Rethinking Community, and I believe an occasional listener to the Always Already podcast. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show, John. Um, so I kind of wanted to start by asking you to situate this uh, this book 
kind of in, you know, what is over the past 10 years, perhaps we want to say, starting with Kathy Weeks's book in 2011, um, kind of a burgeoning field of political theory of work and labor. So, you know, Weeks in the, you know, the first couple pages of that book, obviously, says it's bizarre that political theory has very little to say about work itself. And then, in, you know, then there's this a lot of work and yours is a part of it um, that I feel kind of responds to that challenge. So my question then is, how do you see your book fitting into the increasing kind of critical discussion of work within political theory and political philosophy? Okay, yeah. Um, so I probably should say from the outset that when I started work on the project um, in 2011, it was my dissertation. And, um, I was working on the prospectus and had basically decided that I wanted to write something. Um, I wasn't sure what yet, um, about work, um, and knew that what really interested me, um, was kind of the meaning of work and the social significance of work. Um, and almost at that exact time that I formulated, um, some kind of overall outline, Kathy Weeks's book came out. Um, so it was kind of one of those moments where <laughs> I had been having some of those same thoughts that she articulates very well at the beginning about the lack of discussion of work in political theory. Um, and, you know, from a sort of non-academic perspective, um, a lot of this was being brought into really stark relief for me around 2011, when not only had we been a few years into the recession and uh, the kind of jobless recovery uh, of the Great Recession from 2008, um, so you had a lot of discussion of employment, and every day it seemed there was some kind of um, new um, statement being made by a politician or, or or a pundit about the value of work and the need for more jobs. So that was that was very much present um, in that time, but also. Um, there were um, very well-publicized um, riots or urban disorder that broke out in the UK, which is where I'm from, um, in 2011 in the summer. And one of the things that um, I mentioned in the book, but it was actually a chapter of my dissertation, was really exploring the way in which the discourse on the riots um, tied in with this valuing of work. Um, that, in other words, it was the fact that or it was assumed to be the fact that so many of the people who participated in the riots were unemployed that really accounted for their kind of lack of responsibility in the, in the way that they were presented, at least by the mainly right-wing media. Um, so that was all going on, and it just really fascinated me that there wasn't much in political theory um, at all addressing what obviously seemed like deeply political questions. Um, but then, of course, Kathy Weeks' book comes out, and she is you know, very much a political theorist, I think, um, and so she's kind of saying, look, political theory doesn't talk about this. Um, I'm going to talk about this. Um, so it took me quite a long time to figure out how I could actually um, say something which was complementary um, to what she had written. Um, it's a fantastic book, um, and I learned so much from reading it, and it inspired me in different ways. So I wanted to do something that was complementary, but obviously also don't want to just say the same things over again, and that wouldn't really... Um, 
be be a worthwhile book to write. So right, because um, I mean, you know, you said it, the book came out when you were working on your perspectives, which is right. great on the one hand because it's like, all right, you know, here's like a you know like really deep engagement in the area that I want to talk about, but it's that's also right. kind of daunting because it's like, yeah. well, you know, okay, now I have to engage with this work. Or, yeah, that's you know, right. That's right. So I think to begin with, what I tried to do was actually offer a more empirically grounded account of work in neoliberalism. Um, and so a chapter of the book that reflects that the most is the second chapter, which deals with flexibility um, as both um, a labor market policy. So at the kind of macro scale, the idea of flexible labor markets, uh, but then also in terms of firms being flexible and offering flexibility to individual workers. So that was an attempt to do something kind of more empirically grounded than I think um, Weeks offers in her book. Um, like I said, I also did have a chapter which was part of my dissertation, but not of the book that looked at the um, disorder in 2011 um, in England, where I was trying to do something similar and sort of think about the relationship between that and the refusal of work, which is one of her main concepts. Um, ultimately, though, um, as I went through the publication process and, you know, was getting feedback from people on the project, um, what I realized was, A, I didn't really have the, <laughs> the empirical um, wherewithal um, and, and training to do justice to that kind of work. Um, and B, it just started to occur to me that I actually did have kind of an original argument, I thought, um, about the way that work creates not just um not, about the way that the discourse on work creates and constructs not just individual workers which is essentially um weeks's argument but how it actually creates a whole kind of social order and this was what i think i found interesting in the in the aftermath of the riots um uh the sort of overarching assumptions about the need for a society to have employment in order to make it harmonious and well-ordered. And so that's in the end, I think kind of where my, um, what I hope to be the more original contribution of the book began, um, in this idea that it's intimately connected, work is intimately connected with community. Right. And I think, I think that comes through in the book, um, without a doubt. And, Maybe you can kind of map that argument a little bit for the listeners so they can sure. get a sense before um, we get into some other things about about the book. And maybe particularly, you know, one of the things you're doing in the book is to say, you know, it's not only in capitalist and or neoliberal capitalist um, discourse, liberal discourses um, of work or of society that we see that kind of mechanism um, mm -hmm. at play, but also in leftist thinkers and philosophers like Andre Gores, like Hart and Negri. So what are they, yep. you know, the, granted that's happening in different ways in those different theory, theorists, but how are you kind of working through this idea of work as a mechanism of um, social inclusion or exclusion or of social function? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think that um, we're all quite familiar, probably, um, listeners to your show, I'm sure, are familiar with the idea that uh, what counts as work in capitalism is a very narrow um, set of activities that are waged, essentially. And so there's a real need to broaden our conception of what counts as work beyond those waged activities, especially because so much of what is not waged um, work really does an important um job, um, to use that word, 
um, in reproducing society. Um, and a lot of the time, of course, that work's been feminized as well. Um, so I think um, the theorists that I'm engaging with are well aware of that problem. Um, and at the same time, um, and this is where I'm sort of um, kind of moving away from them a little bit, I think that there's the possibility, the risk even, that um, we end up reproducing the same mechanism of inclusion and exclusion, even if we say, okay, let's not base a person's social identity on whether they have a job, but instead let's base it on, say, the amount that they're contributing to society in non-waged ways, right? So um, I think that um, I kind of go back to the, the, the sort of more fundamental questions of what it means to uh, live in community and um, even thinking about the word cooperate, which for some reason um, it took me a long time to realize basically means to work together, uh, mm -hmm. literally from the from the root word of um, operate. Um, so, you know, in other words, these kind of so-called post-work visions um, really were referring to um, post-wage work societies, but they still had this really... Um, strong attachment, I think, to the idea that it's through work, although in their case, not necessarily waged work, that we form a social bond, that we form a society. Um, and of course, one of the things that Kathy Weeks explains so well in her book is the way in which actually, um, you know, a work ethic uh, maintained very um, strong, uh, maintained a very strong position within um, actually existing um, socialist states. Right. So just because you've overcome exploitation and wage labor doesn't mean that people aren't still um, very, very much attached to um, the, the value of work in ways that are very problematic for them. Um, so I think all of that led me to start thinking, well, what, it w what would it mean to more radically um, disconnect the idea of community and being a member of community from work however you define it right so from work both that's waged which is um how it currently uh, i think operates in terms of uh, a person's social standing being dependent on being a wage laborer but what if even if we move beyond that situation and people were uh, valued according to their contributions to society what kind of problems might that pose still in terms of exclusion and inclusion that's a long yeah. rambling answer. I don't know. No, 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 not at all. I mean, because it, it also points to one of the broader philosophical questions of this book, and that's a question about social ontology. Mm. Yeah. So what? why is social ontology in particularly, why is a critique of an individualist social ontology, um, why is that key to theorizing about work and theorizing about post-work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, thanks. That helps me perhaps fill in a little bit of what I didn't say before as well. Um, so what I noticed was um, reading Andre Gores, who um, you know, was writing about this stuff for a long time. He's got a lot of um, really rich sociological and theoretical accounts um, of work, admittedly focusing mainly on France and you know, Europe more generally, but stuff that has real relevance today still, I think, for understanding um, the world we inhabit. So, you know, going back through all of his writings and seeing his position develop over time, it occurred to me that even though he's critical of what he calls the ideology of work, he, which is sort of overvaluation of work, basically, he's also really wedded to the idea that it's through paid work that individuals 
gain a form of social integration. Um, and so this makes him, in the earlier parts of his career, quite skeptical of the idea of an unconditional basic income, because he thinks that that would mean, essentially, that you would have a marginalized population who don't have work opportunities um, provided with a minimum income that would allow them to live, but still you know, being marginalized from society. So he was very aware of the ways in which um, paid work establishes a person's social identity, but he didn't really criticize that um, so much. And so I think what that, um, what reading his work illuminated to me was the idea that it seems as though um, the discourse on work or the ideology of work in the in the work society is trying to answer a problem, trying to solve a problem that we don't necessarily always think about explicitly, which is how do you tie individuals together into some kind of functioning uh, whole? And I think work is the answer to that question or to that problem. Um, and with that in mind, I then started to think, well, why is that even a problem in the first place? In other words, why do we even think that individuals need to be incorporated into some kind of whole? Um, and what kind of social ontology does that presuppose? Well, it's really the sort of individualist liberal view that there are individuals um, who can be or cannot be integrated into society. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that then when you start questioning that view opens on to a different view of community than we're used to. And that's where um, the work in particular of Jean-Luc Nancy, but also Roberto Esposito, to a lesser extent, maybe um, Agamben, where, where that really comes in quite helpful. And I should say, just as a side note, that I hadn't really read Nancy um, when I was uh, working on the dissertation. It was actually as a um, it was later, and as I was working on questions of um, belonging with regard to migration, that I encountered his work and then started to think, wow, this would really, I think, have some relevance to, to the work project as well. So that's how that kind of became really a central part of the overall argument. Right. And I mean, and that even goes back to kind of what you said in response to the first question, right? That this turn to thinking about community, where for you, Nancy, is absolutely essential to re-envisioning what community mm -hmm. could mean, mm -hmm. um, is something that something else you're doing with this broader kind of critique of work. And so, yeah. I mean, so given that, I don't know. I mean, maybe for folks who haven't read Nancy, um, and admittedly, I hadn't read anything beyond the inoperative community essay mm -hmm. um, before before reading this book. Um, kind of, how would you describe his challenge to people who are thinking about community? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think um, it's probably. I th I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere, but I was actually trying to find the reference the other day for a different paper I was writing, and I and I couldn't. So. Anyway, um, I think, you know, the inoperative community came out, um, I think, in the late 80s in French, um, but possibly, um, yeah, it was translated in 91, I think, into English. Um, but Nancy is writing, um, I think, at a time where you've got this um, very stark liberal communitarian debate happening. Um, I don't know how much he was following that, because that is more of an analytic philosophy um, kind of debate. Um, and he's obviously a continental thinker. But really, what he's trying to do, as I see it, is in a sense, um, find some way of avoiding um, two excesses. One is an excessive 
individualism, which basically um, sees society as just an association, um, voluntary association even, um, of individual atoms, um, which is along the lines of the social contract tradition in his mind. In other words, you have these kind of pre-existing individuals who just agree to get together in a political community, and that's society, right? Um, so he wants to avoid that because he thinks that that doesn't really do justice to our um, our relationality as human beings. Um, so he says um, in a few different places, you know, there's no one that is purely one, um, all together is being together. Um, these are few of his sort of slogans, if you like. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, in a sense, it's quite, and he recognizes this himself, it's quite an obvious point um, that we are interdependent beings. But really, his claim is an interesting one, which is that neither liberalism, uh, which um, in his view doesn't adequately um, embrace that relationality, nor communitarianism, including at its most extreme forms, fascism and communism, uh, they don't really recognize that. And so the, the sort of communitarian view um, that he's distancing himself from really sees community as a kind of um, organic substance or an essence um, and individuals being subsumed into that or fused into that. And that obviously has um, extremely disturbing consequences when taken to an extreme. Um, and so his ontology is an attempt to, I think, do justice to both in the individual, the subject that is individual, um, yet the subject that is at the same time um, necessarily in relation with others. Um, and all of this really leads to um, a lot, from, from my perspective at least, a lot of very um, generative um, insights about the human condition. Um, because if we think about, going back to the point I was making before, the way that the work society and the discourse on work is presented as an answer to the question, how do we incorporate individuals into a social whole, right? Then if you, you see that as a kind of liberal response to the social from his point of view, where you've got these individuals and they exist already. And the question is, how do we make them live together and be productive? But if you take his view, um, then I don't think that problem presents itself in the same kind of way. Um, I don't think it means that you don't have to worry about people being marginalized and excluded, but I think it does suggest that um, community or being in common isn't really a choice that we have. It's really our ontological condition. And then the question is, how do we do justice to that condition? Um, and I think in various ways, the way that we've constructed society you could say as a, as a kind of essence based on work doesn't do justice to that condition for the precise reason that it excludes people who don't do work for various reasons. Right. So, yeah. You right. Know. Yeah. I mean, that's a really helpful way of putting it. And it helps frame, I think your critiques of Gores and of Hart mm. and Negri as well. And so I'm thinking mm. about um, a passage on page 103 of the book, where you critique Gores as well as Hart and Agree because they, quote, understand social bonds and community is entities to be constructed by and through work, end quote. Mm -hmm. And that's for that reason, um, they're kind of insufficient for really thinking about a truly post-work society. I mean, kind of to, to, to what do you ascribe their 
perhaps unspoken, perhaps more explicit um, reliance on that assumption. I mean, is there, is that, you know, is, is it something about Marxism or a certain kind of Marxism or Marx himself, or is there something else going on? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, I don't know that I have a very, um, yeah, I, I understand. Good answer. It's, it's, it's a more kind of speculative question. Yeah, speculative. I, mean, I mean, I do think that, um, um, Hart and Negri, you know, they have this idea of the refusal of work. So they're not, you couldn't classify them um, in any way um, with other Marxists who take the more kind of, um, I think um, Kathy Weeks calls it the sort of modernist Marxist view that really celebrates work, right? Mm -hmm. They're not in that category. Um, but at the same time, and maybe it's connected with this, I don't know, I'd have to think about it more. Um, they obviously are highly, highly attuned to the ways in which Things that we don't always count as work, especially you know, reproductive labor, um, are necessary, vital um, for society to operate. So I think, operate that word again, frankly, <laughs> to work. Um, and so I think um, the first chapter of the book, although I don't engage with um, Hart and Negri there, I do, I do think about it in connection with Gores. And I think um, maybe the answer would be true for them as well. Um, and what I argue there is that, and I and I read um, Freud and Marcuse's reading of um, of Freud as well. There to sort of to think about well, how do we think about civilization uh, more generally, and um, it is intimately connected with work. You know, it's it, it's um, really hard to think about civilization and culture as opposed to nature, and obviously we can question the validity and the usefulness of that dichotomy, but let's just say that we, we, we use it for the moment. It's really hard to think about culture absent from work, right? Because if you define work generally as applying effort to something, um, you know, manipulating matter and meaning and signs and things like that, you can encompass all kinds of different physical intellectual labors with that. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine what culture and civilization would be without that. Right. So I think that's where um, I'm trying to argue that um, when you have a liberal individualist social ontology that poses the question, how do you integrate people together into a kind of functioning social order? That's why work seems to supply such a ready answer to that, because it's really fundamentally connected with our whole idea of what civilization is. Because if you think about civilization, I think Freud makes this point. We think about tools. Well, of course, tools are used for work. Right. Think about writing. Writing is a kind of work, even if it's not always paid or very well paid. Right. So I think this is probably why, if I were to speculate, Hart and Negri, even though they're talking about a post-work society, um, have a hard time thinking about what that society would look like in a way that doesn't have anything to do with work at all. Right. Yeah, I mean, and I think actually that brings me to think about um, chapter four on unconditional basic mm. income. And, and tell me if this kind of structural resemblance resonates for you. If the argument that you just made is that um, there's this broader uh, assumption or reliance on the necessity of work for the construction of society. So insofar as we, as we retain that, it's hard to think about post-work. Mm -hmm. insofar as there are versions of unconditional basic income that are used as, uh, as a means of kind of uh, addressing and retaining and improving uh, work and relying on work, 
it becomes difficult for UBI to become a mechanism to achieve a post-work society. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, it does, absolutely. I mean, I think the only thing I would add to that is that, in a sense, um, there's two layers of critique going on. Um, You've got one layer of critique which says, um, this is sort of the main point of that chapter, that there are many, many arguments for the UBI that we hear um, in academic and popular discourse that sort of celebrate the idea that if we adopted the UBI, it would get people back to work. It would promote employment. Um, it would get rid of the um, poverty trap and the unemployment trap that the welfare system at the moment creates. Right. So those are very much pro-work society arguments. Um, not everyone who argues for the UBI is obviously trying to do it to reinforce the work society and get more people working. Um, Kathy Weeks is an obvious example of that. Um, part of Negri too, although they don't explicitly call it the UBI, I think they call it like a citizen's wage or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think the, se- the second level of critique is that um, actually the, the post-work societies that they're talking about aren't post-work society in the more general sense. They're a post-wage work society, right? So um, the idea of work is still there um, and, and, and still poses potential problems. Um, obviously, these are problems that... Um, we can only anticipate. Um, we don't know them to exist yet. Um, but I think it's still helpful in thinking about, you know, what is it um, when we talk about a post-work society that we're actually aiming towards? Right. And, in the, and, and thus, I think one of the really useful points of that chapter is, so you make this argument that kind of an analysis of UBI, and I'm sorry, I don't have the page number for this, reveals a veiled struggle between its advocates over fundamental social, economic, and mm-hmm. political questions, which I think is a really important um, kind of theoretical and political at the same time approach to take to UBI. And with that approach, one of the fascinating things that you do in that chapter is use the Lacanian category of fantasy mm-hmm. to think about UBI. So I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners a bit about uh, what you do in that part of the chapter. Yeah, sure. So I think um, it's the um, the work of um, Jason Glenoth Glynos and David Howarth in particular that um, was useful to me there and they are drawing on the Lacanian fa- uh, concept of fantasy and some of what they write um, and, and the sort of basic idea here is um, that um, it, it's a way to rethink ideology um, differently than false consciousness um, so instead of thinking of it in terms of you know misunderstanding of what your true interest as a member of a particular class might be it's really from their point of view ideology is a misunderstanding of our ontological condition uh, it's an ontological misunderstanding um, it assumes that things are the way that they are and that's how they should be right um, which is what a lot of the, the, the work in critical theory that tries to denaturalize um, practices and beliefs tries to address um, and so for them the the concept of fantasy comes up um in a way that's particularly relevant to me around this idea of a, the fantasy of a harmonious, well-ordered society. Um, and so if you start from what they call a, an axiom of post-structural theory, which is that the social is in fact radically contingent, um, then you realize quite quickly, I think, or from that axiom follows the thought that, you know, any, um, 
desire that you might have for um, closure um, and for harmony and for order is really a fantasy. Um, and it's a fantasy that appeals to people's um, anxieties very often about things like the unraveling of social ties. Really, it's the flip side to that. Um, and that's something that, again, was really apparent to me when I was watching um, the disorder in England in 2011 unfold and the responses to that um, on the part of politicians and think tanks and so on is really the sense of anxiety over not just individual anxiety in terms of people without jobs feeling anxious, which is obviously very understandable, but people in positions of privilege being anxious about kind of the disintegration of society. And so the fantasy of the work society is intended to kind of um, supply an analytic concept that would allow you to, to think about um, this ideal that's being envisioned by people um, and the ways in which that can then um, motivate certain people, um, particularly um, on the sort of right of the spectrum, to actually embrace the universal basic income, um, which would perhaps be counterintuitive to a lot of people not familiar with those debates. Um, because what they hope is that this will bring people more into work. And if you bring people um, into work in greater numbers, then you restore that kind of fantasy of having a society built around work. Right. I mean, I, so I taught a seminar on work and post-work this past semester. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I told my students that there's also this entire right wing or libertarian or like Silicon Valley libertarian uh, advocacy for UBI, like their minds were blown. Yeah. Yeah, and that was one of the things that just really captured my attention when I first started looking into it, was just that, that breadth of um, support that you get um, from all kinds of political positions for this idea of the UBI. Um, and I think my, my sort of takeaway point about that is um, people on the left who are arguing for a post-work society, even if by that they really just mean a post-wage work society, um, as opposed to something even more radical than that, need to be very careful about, um, you know, making alliances with people on the right who are arguing for it, um, because the function it would serve is very different. You know, for people like Kathy Weeks and myself, for example, the UBI um, is a way of radically transforming society in the way that we think about work, right, reducing our reliance on paid work. But for thinkers um, on the right who propose it, it's, it's not that at all. Um, it's really a way of restoring the work society and just making sure that it actually, to use the sort of to use the language that they do, that it pays to work. Right. Whereas they would argue that the welfare system as it exists makes it not pay to work. And or as a mechanism for just abolishing social welfare programs. Well, that's know, right, all, too. All the way. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so there's so many sort of devils lurking in the detail of all of this. Um, you know, I mean, there are, you know, lots of debates about how high do you set the basic income? The fear, obviously, from a, from a leftist perspective, being that it's not set high enough, because then it will just essentially be a sort of subsidy to corporations to, 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 to pay their workers insufficient amounts. Um, but then also um, questions that I don't really address in the book about to what extent do you make um, the UBI stand in for um, other social programs, which could then be marketized, right? Um, so you make people pay for their healthcare out of the UBI, or you make people pay for their education or social services, et cetera, et cetera, out of the UBI, right? And that becomes, I think, um, quite dystopian. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so if kind of one of the uh, responses to questions about work that is discussed currently is UBI, 
it seems to me that over the past six months or 12 months, another example is the notion of a federal jobs guarantee, right? This is something that, you know, potential U.S. Democratic presidential candidates, whether it's Sanders or Booker or Gillibrand, have all said they support in some form. It was a part of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's platform. Mm -hmm. Jack Ebbins written about it a bunch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, you know, so what, what, what would your response be to, you know, someone on the social democratic left arguing that what is necessary really is a federal jobs guarantee? I mean, I think it's tough because obviously as the world exists at the moment, as our society exists in particular at the moment, having a job is absolutely essential to your material well-being, to your status as a member of society, right? So I think um, as a um, immediate measure that could address those glaring injustices that exist around unemployment and underemployment, it makes perfect sense. Um, Absolutely. I think the danger with it would be that consciously or otherwise, the proponents of it could be reinscribing the value of work, um, revalorizing work in ways that would limit a more um, radical opening from that. Um, And I don't know whether that means that I, I, I don't, my hunch is that that shouldn't mean that, um, that we should argue for those type of policies, that kind of guarantee of work, but that we perhaps need to be really clear about the purpose that it's serving, right? That it's a, a, a demand that responds very much to a particular organization of society um, as it is at the moment, that it's transitional though, right? That it doesn't represent some kind of end point um, of an ideal society where everyone is working. At, le- at least that's what I think people who agree with me would ought to say um but then if you don't then that's not so much of a problem right right um in a somewhat kind of different vein one of the kind of uh bodies of literature that i kept thinking about that you bring in at certain places um particularly via nancy fraser is that of kind of socialist and marxist feminism particularly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm interested you know to what extent you think there are additional resources for the kind of post-work society that you want us to think about in Marxist feminist discourses, right? Whether it's wages for housework, um, which of course, you know, is, is the idea of wages for housework. Yeah. So it's to abolish, right. you know, the system of work as it currently exists um, or kind of other iterations of Marxist feminism, you know, either in general or specifically if you think there are interesting connections to be had between Nancy and the idea of the unworked community mm. and various Marxist feminist visions. Well, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I mean, I think that the chapter on flexibility, I, I added this part in fairly late. Um, it was in response to a suggestion from a reviewer um, about care work and the care deficit. Um, and, in that part of the book, you know, I, I think I am incorporating um, fairly by now conventional Marxist feminist insights about the ways in which um, capitalist society does not recognize and valorize um, much paid work, uh, sorry, much care work rather, whether that's paid or not paid, um, but that it needs to, obviously. Um, and I think, you know, what I'm arguing there is that flexibility is a way of kind of tapering over that problem. Um, so 
I imagine that, you know, one could develop and explore some of those questions around care, care work um, uh, in a lot more detail than I did. Um, then that could be a part of it. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure apart from that. Um, I mean, I think for me personally, the Marxist feminist influence um, came through just in this, uh, just in this um, heightened awareness of the narrowness with which we define work in contemporary society. Um, so that's, that's kind of where it began for me really. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and obviously weeks is of course, you know, working within a Marxist feminist mm -hmm. paradigm as mm -hmm. well. Um, yeah. so a slightly different maybe way to think of that. I was thinking about this question is how does one think about either Marx's or Marxist feminist versions of the concept of social reproduction in the yeah. context of a post-work society? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I mean, there is that danger, right, in saying, okay, we're not going to have paid labor. Um, we're going to valorize all other kinds of labor um, that exist because they're really important um, to the reproduction of life. Um, but that you end up, and this is my fear and the and part of the argument, that you end up then um, setting up a new sort of standard of what counts as a, a proper contribution. And it's not wage labor anymore. It's something else. Um but obviously, you can't deny the importance of reproductive labor to biological and social existence. It's there. You know, we are um, social beings, and that takes work. Um, so I think, um, yeah. I, it, it, yeah, it's I mean, a, you, you hit on the underlying tension, right? Because I think there's an argument to be made that there is perhaps some sort of conflict or tension between that perspective of social reproduction, Marxist feminism, and, mm -hmm. um, and the unworked or inoperative community in the sense that social reproduction seems to partake in some of the same assumptions about the necessity of work in order for one to be incorporated into society. Right. So, that possibility. I mean, but there's also the possibility that, you know, a Marxist feminist critique of social reproduction is is helpful or is an important alongside or in conjunction with a kind of uh, post-work sort of projects. No, I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, in the, in the conclusion of the book, I get into this sort of question yeah. of, well, isn't an unworked community where anyone would count as a member regardless of their contribution to society, basically a free rider's paradise. Um, and what I say there is actually the opposite. Um, people, if they um, started to imagine themselves in the kind of relational way that Nancy urges us to, would see an immense duty to help others. And some of that helping of others actually would take the form of work, um, reproductive work um, in, the, in the broader sense of social reproduction. The key point is, though, I think if we're going to move away from a work society, um, that that not be a condition of inclusion within that society, right? That you do not count or measure the degree to which a person is engaging in that kind of social reproduction as a criterion of their membership. Um, if you do, then it's still kind of a work society, right? And it's, you know, then it's a sort of finger pointing exercise of so-and-so is not really um, pulling their weight in doing community service and so on. One of the things that actually, I, did, I don't think I quoted this in the book, um, but that was influential for me in thinking about community was Esposito's idea of um, the moonus mm -hmm. or the debt um, that you owe others. But also, as he puts it, it's a gift. Um, and so it's, um, 
the obligation of mutual gift giving, I think is how he puts it. And in his alternative theorization of community, which is somewhat similar, I think, to the inoperative or unworked community of non-C, the point so. is um, not what do others owe me, but what do I owe them, right? And so I think it's a question of um, shifting perspective away from are the people around me doing enough? Uh, are they doing their fair share? Are they supporting themselves and the community enough, right? And focusing instead on what am I doing? Um, am I offering what I can? Um, and in a sense, I suppose it goes back to, you know, um, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, right? Um, I think that's the sense in which this is ultimately a communist project. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that, that has me thinking about, and this comes up a couple of times in the book. And so, well, let me phrase this as a question. So, what do you think? the perspective of post-work in general, the perspective of non-C in particular, um, or kind of the project you're, you're engaging in, what kind of perspectives does that offer us on the racialization of labor? Mm. Um, and kind of how then do we think about community in a way that responds to the racialization of labor. Oh, and by racialization of labor, what do you have in mind? In I mean, you know, kind of the, I mean, whether it's the, uh, you know, uh, the after, something like the, thinking about the afterlives of slavery, whether it's thinking about, um, you know, the kind of race gendering of domestic labor among, you know, black women working mm -hmm. in white families. And kind of now we might think about it in terms of um, kind of Latinx labor and all these kind of various ways that uh, jobs or certain modes or forms of labor are ascribed or are partake in particular modes of, of making race, right? What then does it mean to think about community or think about a post-work community um, through the lens of race? Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I mean, I think a couple of things there are, um, you know, the idea of the inoperative community, which essentially rejects essentialism, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, obviously is completely opposed to the idea that something like race would be a marker or should be used as a marker of inclusion and exclusion. Um, so that's a, perhaps an obvious point um, about um, the way in which this alternative um, theorization of community um, can challenge um, racial hierarchies and, and exclusion based on race. But also, I should say, um, based on um, non-racial civic ideas of belonging, too, I think. Um, so thinking about undocumented migrants, for example, um, that's obviously a racialized population and they perform racialized work. Um, but I think the unworked community, the inoperative community, provides, a, and in some of Nancy's later work, too, on the common, um, provides a, 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 a way to criticize the idea that... Um, even if you say the essence of community that we're trying to fulfill is some kind of non-racial American identity, right? And that anyone can belong to that just as long as they've been born here or they go through the right immigration procedures, even that Nancy is criticizing on a philosophical level um, because that still uh, essentially um, imposes a particular set of values um, and principles onto what then counts as belonging to a community. So I think, well, that doesn't really answer your question about racialization. Um, the fascinating thing that you raised, I think, for me about 
the racialization of labor is, well, if we've moved beyond the um, kind of importance that's attached to work in terms of personal identity and also belonging in the community, then how would race be constructed under those circumstances? Um, you know, what would the construction of race look like, in other words, if labor were to lose its social significance or to have a diminished social significance? Um, that's an open question, I think, but it seems like it would definitely be changed, right? So has this, has working on work, so to speak, um, you know, for almost a decade at this point, uh, change the way you approach academia as a form of work or kind of what, what sort of vantage point has, uh, has your book offered you, um, on academia and academic life and academic labor? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> if she listens to this, um, which hopefully she will, um, my wife will be amused, I think, um, <laughs> by, by what I'm about to say, because for a long time, it's been a kind of standing joke among us. When I was working on the dissertation, at least, I should say, not so much um, more recently, but it's been a, a joke that, you know, people study the things that they are or the things that, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of in a sense embody them. Um, and, you know, she, she would um, say, look, you're a workaholic and you're the person that's writing about <laughs> how, how important work is uh, and, and how it should be devalued in its significance. So I think uh, there was that irony there. Um, gosh, I have so much I could say about this. Um, I think one of the things that I reflected on in my dissertation, I, I'm just remembering now in the conclusion, was, well, part of the trouble with the work society as we inhabit it is that it doesn't really give you a choice about whether to um, perform all of these um, all of these ways of valuing work. Um, in other words, you know, if you want to be someone, uh, well, for one thing, you have to have a job, right? Unless you're independently wealthy, you need to earn money. If you want to do something that is minimally alienating and exploitative. Right, you then need to find something that is um, something that you enjoy, that you're passionate about, something that you can have some autonomy over, and that's obviously something that relatively few privileged people are able to do. That then introduces an element of competition um, with other people because those positions are desirable, which then, of course, means that people are working harder and harder and harder in order to to, to get into those positions. So I think, in other words, and then obviously there's the whole debate about the shift to adjunct labor and universities as a, a cost-saving mechanism and, and the, the whole contingency of academic labor. Um, so I think, in other words, as much as you personally can criticize or want to criticize um, the work society and, the, and, and the, the ideology of work, it's really easy to get swept up in it at the same time, right, because of the way society is structured. Because from a personal point of view, I realized that I had to work and I wanted to do something that was the most rewarding and fulfilling that I could. But then once I made that choice and saw how competitive it was, I realized that I was going to have to work really, really, really hard. Um, and I think um, since since being fortunate enough to get a tenure-track job, um, I think um, my book has actually taught me a lot about resisting that um, and and really sort of thinking, um, okay, what's meaningful to me in my life um, beyond my academic work? Um, how am I going to meet the performance criteria for my academic job 
um, and be successful enough to maintain my position um, while also making space for activities outside of that, um, which may mean that I forego potentially some element of academic success in the long run, right? So it's it's complicated. It's a, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day too in terms of kind of a, you know, I think all of us in academia have this um, to some extent um, sort of alternation between the love of our subjects and the love of learning and thinking and writing and teaching, uh, which is very vocational, but then increasingly uh, the sort of more professional element of it, right, where, you know, it's about, satisfying criteria um, that have been imposed um, externally upon us. Um, it's about um, performance. Um, it's about all kinds of things that may not be why we got into it in the first place, but that which we have to prove our success in in order to continue doing a bit of it that we really do love. Um, so I think there's there's that kind of give and take um, between the two that I, that I find myself constantly negotiating. Um, but I would say just to to conclude my ramble about this. Yeah, I mean, but, this is, I mean, why it, it's not the first time there have been long ramblings on the, yeah. <laughs> the nature of what it is we're doing and yeah. the nature of what we're doing in terms of critique support. Yeah. So you're, you're well in the tradition. Uh, okay. Well, so, I mean, I think um, for me, what's always been successful just based on my, I don't know, my body clock, my, my energy levels is actually, um, a fairly standard work week. Um, and I know that a lot of people get into academia because they don't want to do that. Um, they don't want to be in the office, <laughs> um, eight or five, nine to five, whatever. But for me, um, that works really well. And so I keep fairly regular hours. Um, but of course I don't have to do that, which makes it really different than a lot of people who do work reg- those same hours, but, um, are being monitored by someone else. Um, there's still a massive privilege there. Um, but I think, you know, since having children as well, it's, it's forced me to kind of contain my professional work. Um, but in a way that just personally, again, I think has been really rewarding because it means that I don't, in a sense, get too bogged down in it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's a self-imposed constraint, obviously, but to kind of try to bookend my working day or limit my working day, um, and in a sense, treat it kind of like a job it's quite liberating as well um, in the sense that I'm not fully subsumed into this um, academic identity um, feeling that my whole life is bound up with it and my whole self-worth is bound up with it in ways that, you know, I think academics are particularly susceptible to being, um, to being exploited in that way. Right. Right. When, when it becomes a calling instead of, or in addition to a job. Exactly. Um, because we do it for the love of it. And, you know, you have an interest, you care about your students, you want to, um, think about stuff and write interesting things, um, for yourself and others. And, you know, that is so easily manipulated, obviously. Um, and, and it, and it, it can become all encompassing. Um, and I think, again, this is just my own personal, um, take on life. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I, but I don't think that's good. I, I think focusing on one activity alone, um, doesn't lead to um, a fulfilling, healthy life. At least I know it doesn't for me, right? That it's, um, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of the myth of specialization too, I think. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, and like, you know, it, it's it's useful. And I, I teach this in pretty much every class, even if it's like the only marks we read where it's, you know, you're going to fish in the morning and raise cattle in the evening yeah. and, or, you know, in the afternoon and philosophize after dinner, right? Yes. Philosophize after dinner, you know? Yeah. Um, 
that that you know that that's uh, that, that that's that's I mean for him it's tied to you know potential particular ideologies of work, but exactly. You know, but that's still there. <laughs> but I think what's so interesting there. too, though, is that you um so um you know in graduate school I I quite often would work six days a week at a certain point uh, for a period of time, and I went back and forth whether I worked six days or five days, but I never really worked seven days because I knew that I needed that one day at least just to you know, take care of chores and, you know, just recharge my batteries a little bit as well. Um, but I think, um, (laughs) in reading about work, um, you find that there are actually, um, arguments made that people are more productive the fewer hours they work, Mm -hmm. right? Which is another interesting way in which, um, a reduction of work can be presented in a way that has this kind of pro work, (laughs) underside to it right which i think is problematic on the one hand it's true from my experience that the less you work the more effective you are when you actually apply yourself to it because you're not exhausted for one thing um but i think it's really problematic to only valorize that time away from work to the extent that it makes you more effective when you are at work and i do this myself um you know i think I, I, I love cycling and i think to myself well i'm really busy i can't really justify going for an hour long bike ride in the middle of my working day, uh, because I've got all this stuff to do, but then I'll come along and then another thought will pop into my head. I'll say, well, actually you do some of your best thinking when you are on your bike ride, because mm-hmm. it's not so structured. Um, and you know, you might come back and have this, um, more or less interesting insight that you wouldn't have had if you just <laughs> sat there at your desk. Right. And, and you need the time to recover and to recharge your batteries and stuff. And, but you know, when doing that, you're obviously at the same time, just reaffirming the value of work and you're saying, no, it's okay to take time away from work because really what you're doing is in service of work, right? Not my life is more than work and I'm going to take time to go cycling because that's something that gives me, you know, joy and, uh, makes me healthy and all the other things about it that one might value. Not that, but that, you know, it's, so it's hard in other words to escape from this, I think, um, you know, at the level of your own mindset, even if you're intensely critical of it and aware of it. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of brings me to something else that I, that I was hoping to, to ask you that also functions somewhat on the, you know, what, what does this critique of work mean on a personal level? And that, you know, so I taught, I taught this seminar last semester, you know, and I, and I did so with the understanding that I was teaching all of these critiques of work and bringing these ideas of anti and post-work imaginaries you know, to a group of mostly seniors who are about to graduate and, yes. you know, whether they've been working or not up till that point are now expected to go out and work. Yep. So, I mean, you know, for the 22 year old recent college graduate, what do you think it means for them in their kind of materialized material existence to take on this critique of work or to approach, mm-hmm. you know, the, the very real pressures that they face of, you know, economic uncertainty and wanting and needing healthcare and probably taking on student debt and these sorts of things from the standpoint that you perhaps offer in this book. So what should young people in particular yeah, I mean, you know, g- g- given given that you know we we do our writing, but uh, you know, for me at least, most of my time is spent interacting with uh, with students. Yeah, and so I'm kind of trying to think of what does it mean for me to bring a critique of work in the way that you do so excellently in this book to somebody at that stage in their life facing the pressures that they're facing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't know if this quite answers the question, but I think um, it may. Um, you know, I think. 
so many of our students um, are sadly at university because that's the way to, or presented as the way to, and arguably, I mean, the statistics do bear this out, the way to ultimately earn more money, have more job opportunities, um, a more stable um, career. Um, and so I think that is what motivates a lot of people. Um, and I think the danger there um, is that it can lead to, um, and obviously this doesn't apply to everyone, but it can lead to a very instrumental approach to what people are learning and why they want to know certain things. Um, even focusing on knowledge right, and content more than on um, cultivating um, particular um, um, ways of reading or engaging with ideas or just generally exploring um, uh, ideas, history, and so on. So I think um, you know there is this, in a sense, if you were to take the message of the book on board um, as a freshman, say, mm-hmm. I think it would be take classes that are valuable to you and that are interesting and that push your boundaries rather than um, ones that you think are going to get you a job. Because in a sense, that time at university can be, and I realize that the way that we finance it reduces the extent to which it is, but it can be, in a way, um, a microcosm or a very limited period in the person's life where they're not um, subject to the same kind of pressures. Um, to well, I mean, I know that so many of our students do have to earn jobs, so I, I'm not romanticizing this, do have to earn money with um, various part-time work and so on. But still, it, it could be um, an opportunity to do things um, for their own sake, um, rather than because it um, is going to be instrumentally valuable. But of course, the way that we structure it um, in terms of finance, funding, um, means that students, many of them can't do that. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the tragedies of, of higher education now. Right. Um, so I think that that's about the end of kind of major questions I had planned uh, to ask you. But Jane, is there anything that we didn't get the chance to talk about that you'd like the listeners to hear? The only thing I would probably add is that um, one of the things that I um, didn't incorporate into the book, but was thinking about a little bit at the time even of my dissertation, and which I've returned to now, is the relationship between um, migration and borders and the work society. Um, And I think this is really fascinating and um, timely as well. The way that... um, you know, the economic contributions of migration and migrants um, is presented as an argument for more migration, for example. Um, and on the other hand, the idea that migrants are stealing the jobs of native-born um, workers, and that's a reason to limit it, right? And so I think it's interesting the way in which sort of some pro and anti-immigration um, discourse falls back on this kind of work society um, foundation, right? That it's a it's a it's a it's a set of arguments. It provides a set of arguments to justify either enhancing and expanding or limiting migration. Um, and I think what uh, ties in again um, with um, what I've tried to do in the book is how do we think about community? How do we think about who gets to belong? Um, you know, how does that operate in practice? But how ought that to operate really? And once you start thinking about that in conjunction with borders and migration, as some of my um, more recent work has done, you get into, you know, questions of 
cosmopolitanism, um, questions of the legitimacy or otherwise of borders. Um, and then in a piece that I'm working on at the moment, the whole, you know, international division of labor um, and, um, you know, the, the, the function of borders in immobilizing populations um, and essentially making sure that you've got a low wage um labor force ready and ready available for super exploitation um in the global south in particular um so i think there's so much um beyond just um how do we think about this in the context of you know more affluent societies and one of the things that got me really thinking about that was um inventing the future by um Cernasek and williams or Cernasek and williams i don't know how you say his name um, but that book, you know, is a, is, a, is another really interesting contribution to this anti-work, post-work um, literature. And they did a, um, a talk which I saw on the internet in New York. And Alain Badiou basically says, isn't post-work just for the Western world? What about the billions of people who don't have enough work, um, he says. Um, so I think it's perhaps the next stage of theorizing and certain second Williams I've seen they did write a little bit um, in a symposium online where they've begun to do this but it's almost at least for me a, a really interesting next stage of research in this area to think about the global implications of all of this you know to what extent are these arguments basically the reflections of more affluent societies um, and, and the dangers and certain second Williams writes about this too of um, you know, sort of what they call a neo-colonial post-work society that is adopted in more affluent countries and then basically tries to insulate itself from all those people from um, less privileged spaces in the world from coming in, right? Um, right. I'm actually, I mean, I'd be interested to hear more, you know, I know I said this was about the end, but I'm going to ask one more question now. And that's, <laughs> I, you know, I, I earlier I, I had on my list of ideas is to talk to you about accelerationism. So I'm yes, glad that yeah. you uh, brought up Sneerchek and Williams. And so could you tell a bit more about kind of how you think their project interacts with the ideas you're thinking through in this book? In the book? Um, or, or in more recent work that you're yeah. doing? I think more and more recent work in some ways, um, because again, when I wrote the book and was writing the station in particular, I didn't um, engage Deleuze and Guattari. Um, and they don't really in inventing the future, um, but it's very much there in the background, this idea of um, moving beyond capitalism by accelerating some of its tendencies. Um, and they wrote a manifesto, um, the accelerationist manifesto a few years before the book inventing the future, where they're much more explicit about this idea of, um, Deleuze and Qataris that essentially capitalism is deterritorializing and that the revolutionary move is to, you know, embrace that, um, and deterritorialize even further. And I think, um, more recently, they've distanced, them, distanced themselves from accelerationism as a term because the problem is it can connote a kind of embrace of capitalism ultimately, which they're not aiming for. But they do clarify in one passage, I think, of the manifesto a quite interesting difference between acceleration and speed. So they suggest that um, really what accelerationism for them means is that you – um, in classical Marxian fashion, you make use of the developments of capitalism, but in doing so, you actually, in a sense, affect a qualitative shift as well as a quantitative one. 
And I think I don't think they use that terminology exactly, but as I understand it, the point is that it's not just about you know knocking down all the borders um, in the way that capitalism seems to demand. And again, there are these sort of pro-capitalist arguments for open borders as well. It's not just that; it's also fundamentally changing the way that we think about things like citizenship, community, belonging, identity. Right, and that's the accelerationist twist of it. It's not just increasing at the same speed; it's actually speeding up the speed. <laughs> Um, and that would be, um, you know, uh, uh, like I say, a more fundamental questioning of those of those basic ideas. Um, but again, I think the term accelerationism um, kind of um, sprung up and then went away again quite quickly, and, and, and probably is quite. It's probably good that it did. I think because it it it, it, it is problematic. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so you've already talked a little bit about uh, some of the things you're working on now. So I won't ask you that standard closing question, but maybe instead I'll ask you to uh, give the give the listeners a little taste or a little preview of you had an article that uh, recently came out in Philosophy and Social Criticism. Yeah. Um, so that one, um, you know, I'd already written a little bit and had got interested in this concept of no borders, um, and I think. Um, People are most familiar with that in the context of um, no one is illegal, um, the movement, no one is illegal, and no borders camps as well um, that um, sprung up around Europe and elsewhere. Um, in response to and, and protesting detention and um, deportation of undocumented migrants, um, what I was interested in was thinking through philosophically more what uh, no borders could actually look like on a larger scale rather than just these kind of um, prefigurative politics, if you like. Um, and so I tried to do that in one article where I sort of make a democratic case for no borders. Um, but in this one, in philosophy and social criticism, I actually think of it um, in terms of an expansion, no borders as an expansion of what we already have uh, in large, most parts of the ocean. So, you know, the ocean is largely a commons um, and it's regulated in important ways, uh, but it doesn't fall within the uh, territorial large international waters don't fall within the territorial jurisdiction of nation states, um, and so I go back in the article to the, the sort of classical argument for that from Hugo Grotius, um, who's the founding father of international law, and um, look at his argument for open border uh, for the freedom of the seas, as he calls it, um, and 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 I kind of really um, say he's got three arguments. One of them uh, really isn't that relevant any longer in a post-secular or post-theological age, um, and that is that sort of humans are um, divinely ordained to be in contact with one another, that God wanted us to be in contact with one another, and that it goes against... Um, it goes against God's will for us to separate ourselves off excessively with borders. Um, so therefore we ought to have free navigation around the world. Um, and I, I, I say that we can really, um, again, going back to Nancy and Deleuze and Qatari, we can think about that kind of argument instead of theologically, ontologically, and think about our condition as human beings that's necessarily in relation to each other and think about that as a way to justify, um, the freedom of the seas but beyond that, thinking, well, if that's the argument that we have for the oceans, why not apply that to the whole world, right? What's so special about um, Earth or the, uh, you know, territories, uh, how, what would you, how would you put land, I suppose, right, that makes it seem different in our minds um, from the ocean? And I think um, Grotius tries to distinguish the ocean from the land in ways that don't really make sense, actually. Um, 
And so, so in the end, I'm sort of saying we ought to apply the same principle to the ocean, um, to the world as a whole, which would be not, which would be to treat it as a global commons. All right. Well, that, um, that is something that listeners can find in the July issue of philosophy, July 2018 issue of philosophy and social criticism. Um, James, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. This was a really, really interesting conversation for me. Yes. Thank you so much. Me too. It was a lot of fun. Um, I wish I could have had this with you <laughs> as I was writing the book, but I realized that wouldn't really be <laughs> so compelling as a, as a podcast. <laughs> Probably not. Well, you know, you say that and you know, what, what is the podcast? A lot of time us working out ideas that are yeah, actually sure. find their way into things we write at some point yeah. down the line. <laughs> but anyway, th- thanks again, James. Thank you. again to James for taking some time out of his summer uh, to put in some academic labor, put in some academic work uh, for all of us to uh, listen to and learn from. Thank you, listener, uh, for your ongoing support of the Always Already podcast. And uh, now it's time, of course, for the famous Always Already podcast uh, post-credits spiel. The Always Already podcast is created by James Pagliotti Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Send us requests for text you'd like us to discuss, advice, questions, answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon. Uh, subscribe to our RSS feed, like us on iTunes or the... Uh, podcast provider podcast listening platform of your choice we are part of the critical mediations network you can go to critmediations.com or follow them on twitter us on twitter at critmediations check out the soundcloud channel there is a ton of wonderful podcasts and other uh, hashtag content that you can find associated with the network if you listen to the always already podcast we can promise you you will like many probably all of the other shows that are part of the network Thank you to Abi for their cover of Landslide, which you're hearing right now. And of course, thank you to previous guests on the show, Bad Infinity. We are playing their Desiring Machines uh, at the intro of this episode. Um, you can support the Always Already podcast by making a per-episode contribution to uh, our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, And uh, we will highlight that as episodes happen less frequently, um, the, the, the best way you can ensure that you get uh, your request to the top of our like 20 request long queue is by supporting us um, on Patreon. And uh, with that, it's now comes to the time in the show where we thank all of our patrons. In the Always Already Circle of Trust, we'd like to thank Boglin, Roddy, Matt, Diane, Ariel, Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada, we would like to thank Alex. In the Friend of the Podcast here, we would like to thank Theory Talk, Eleanor, Daniel, and Rachel. And in the No Reward But Nonetheless Supportive, we would like to thank Joe. So, until next time, uh, stay tuned, take a look at the archives after this particular episode. I would especially suggest our discussion of Kathy Weeks's uh, book, and that is, I wouldn't say, like, maybe around episode 15 or 20, if I'm remembering correctly. And until the next episode, have an always already day. Thank you.